This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Tonight's special coverage of the Trump trials, the high drama and deep significance in two of them today, and what are expected to be the potentially enormous financial consequences tomorrow in a third. Also late today, the former president's final pitch to the Supreme Court on why he should be criminally immune for actions he took in office. So there's a lot to get to in this next hour. In Atlanta today, the drama revolved around Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and whether she and her department should be removed from the Georgia RICO case against the former president and others. At issue, her relationship with lead prosecutor Nathan Wade, the timing of it, and whether that and how they paid for trips they took together created conflicts of interest. He testified today. So did Fonnie Willis. She'll be back on the stand tomorrow. Today, she repeatedly clashed with Ashley Merchant, who's the attorney for the co-defendant, Michael Roman. So let's be clear, because you've lied in this, this. Let me tell you which one you lied in right here. I think you lied right here. No, 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 no. This is the truth, Judge. And this, it, it is a lie. It is a lie. That earned her and the other uh, attorney a strong admonishment from the judge, and we'll have more on that case in a moment. Here in Manhattan, meantime, both drama and history, a judge setting a March 25th date for what will be the first criminal Trump criminal case to get to trial. The first and arguably thinnest, really, of four cases against the former president. Now, this case is New York's 34-count indictment of the former president over his alleged 2016 hush money payment to porn star Stormy Daniels. So something that virtually every legal scholar says they don't understand that there's no crime. Even if he was guilty of something, there's no crime. Others disagree. The he he's referring to there is, of course, himself. More on that trial shortly. Also, as we mentioned, and what happens tomorrow, if, as expected, the judge, Arthur Ngoran, uh, imposes what could be hundreds of millions of dollars in penalties in New York's civil fraud trial. First, we begin with the Georgia case and CNN's Tom Foreman on today's dramatic testimony. I'm right, Bill. A stunning and fiery day in court as Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis took the stand to defend herself and her case. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. In one explosive exchange after another, she explained her romantic relationship with the prosecutor she hired to lead the election fraud case. And she tore into the legal team around former President Trump and his allies. It's highly offensive when someone lies on you, and it's highly offensive when they try to implicate that you slept with somebody the first day you met with them, and I take exception to it. At issue in the hearing were two key questions. First, when did her romantic relationship with Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade begin? Let's be clear. 2022 was the start of any intimate sexual relationship with a district attorney. While Wade testified that the romance started when the investigation of Trump and his co-defendants was well underway, a one-time mutual friend, Robin Yurty, insisted it started way back in 2019. Did you observe them do things that are uh, common among people having a romantic relationship? Yes. Such as, can you give us an example? Hugging, kissing. Disaffection. Willis's take? At that time, she and Wade were friends, nothing more. And as for that contrary testimony... I have not spoken to Robin in um, 
over a year. I certainly do not consider her a friend now. The second key question, did the district attorney financially benefit by choosing her romantic partner to lead the election fraud case? Team Trump came in saying Wade used money from that appointment to take Willis on trips to California, Aruba, Belize, the Bahamas, and more. But hold on, Wade said. Willis paid him back in cash for all that travel. What I allege is that our travel was split roughly evenly. A line he held even as Team Trump drilled in. I'm sure you probably have the deposit slips where you took the cash and deposited the cash into your account, don't you? I did not deposit the cash in my account. You don't have a single solitary deposit slip to corroborate or support any of your allegations that you were paid by Mrs. Willis in cash, do you? No, sir. Not a single solitary one. Not a one. And Willis was right there with him, dismissing the claims of financial shenanigans. I mean, I paid for the hotel, I paid for the flights, I had a birthday luncheon for him, I paid for massages, I paid for everything. And as for always repaying in cash? I have money in my house. You have money in your house, so it was just money that was there. When you meet my father, he's going to tell you as a woman, you should always have, which I don't have, so let's don't tell him that. You should have at least six months in cash at your house at all times. She also batted down questions about sensitive personal matters. I'm not going to emasculate a black man, but I'm, I'm just telling you. I'm that. sorry, what? I'm not going to emasculate a black man. Did you understand that? And slapped away so much of what Team Trump said. No, 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 no. This is the truth, Judge. And this, it, it, it is a lie. It is a lie. So we're seeing as Tom Foreman reporting perspective now, starting with CNN chief legal uh, analyst Laura Coates, anchor of Laura Coates Live here at 11. She's outside the courthouse in Atlanta. Incredible day on the stand. First of all, what's your sense of, of just how this hearing went? I could not believe that the DA took the stand. I think it was expected that perhaps she might be able to avoid this. The judge seemed to be leaning at this after Nathan Wade testified, but was she explosive out of the gate? Raw with emotion, obviously intense, but also very persuasive in that she was trying to clarify the nature of her relationship, talking about why and how she'd repay different things, really had a take no and suffer no fools attitude towards the attorneys that she viewed as trying to to fatally undermine her. The judge at times seemed very flabbergasted by the pacing of the questions from earlier testimony. But ultimately, their responsibility in bringing this motion was to draw a through line between the finances and a financial benefit for Fannie Willis. That was an uphill battle to begin with. Even when you consider in, they only had one witness testifying about a relationship that predated the time in which Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade admitted to having one. Without that through line, you don't have the conflict of interest that would rise to the level of disqualification. Because Anderson, that requires the person to have such a conflict of interest as to undermine fatally the opportunity for any defendant to have a fair trial. That has yet to be met, but tomorrow is another day. Right, she's back on the stand tomorrow. It, it does seem interesting. I mean, they, as you said, they only had the one witness, um, and her credibility is in question. I mean, she didn't have really any details uh, about when exactly when she believes the relationship started, and she also left the office where she was working, the DA's office, mm -hmm under a cloud. Oh, she was clearly a disgruntled employee, 
But I have to tell you, I was screaming at the screen, wondering where the follow-up questions were going to come from. It's not enough to simply say, do you have any doubts they had a romantic relationship at that time? And her to say, I have no doubts. It begs further questions. Why don't you have a doubt? You witnessed them hugging and kissing. Where? Was it in an office, in a home? Who else was there? Was it on the cheek? Was it on the lips? Had you heard stories? Had you seen text messages? What did you know to substantiate what you are presenting to the court? You didn't have those follow-up questions. It begs the question as to why they didn't ask it. Was it one question too many? Was it the old rule of you don't ask a question, you don't know the answer to? But it does require you to have more, especially since it is in isolation and, and currently uncorroborated. That is the kiss of death for many um, litigation and many emotions. You've got to have somebody who is an unbiased, credible witness that will come across to the judge in this case and not have the axe to grind. Now, it could very well be true she is telling the truth, but corroboration is really what you want to have when you have a witness that has a potential cloud, as you say, over her departure from the office. Lord Coates, stay with us. I want to bring in criminal defense attorney uh, Caroline uh, Polisi, also two former federal prosecutors, Jessica Roth and Jeffrey Tubin, and Gwen Keyes, former district attorney for the Stone Mountain Judicial Circuit in DeKalb County, Georgia. Uh, Carolyn, let me start off with you. You're a defense attorney. What did you think of, of the defense here? Yeah, look, obviously today was salacious. It was tawdry. Um, it's an unfortunate- And by the way, this is crazy. Yeah. This is a trial about Donald Trump. Correct. But now we're talking about the DA. Correct. Uh, it is an unfortunate byproduct of legitimate legal questions at, at the heart of this. And, uh, you know, it, it is true. This has nothing to do with the merits of the case, nothing to do with Donald Trump, nothing to do with whether or not, uh, you know, he should continue to be prosecuted, really. Um, there are two distinct issues here that I saw, as evidenced by the, the questions one and two that you did in, in the in the lead-in package. Um, and they're distinct. It's ethical issues and then the law of uh, recusal and, and disqualification of an attorney. And they kind of blended together for me today. I don't think they made that evidentiary hurdle of having the DA be disqualified because I don't think they showed an actual conflict of interest in the finances of this. However, I do think there's a real question that uh, Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade potentially lied in a court affidavit in 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 Willis's about when the relationship about began. when it started and and this is a classic case of the cover up is worse. But the than only the person line. making that allegation is this this one can witness. I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. So what? So what if they had this relationship? Well, the question well, is, did they lie about it? I agree but, with. No, so but, what if they had it? But, exactly. But, but why? Why does it? Does this prejudice Donald Trump or any of these defendants at all? I mean, that's the thing that's so baffling about all this. Suppose they had this relationship. Suppose they lied. Why does that disqualify them in, in, this, in this proceeding? Well, I mean, yes, maybe, to maybe the court. An attorney lying to the court it's, is, it's, is it's not good. Maybe uh, it's a reason that she should be voted out of yeah. office. That's a legitimate thing. But, but there is no prejudice against Donald but, Trump. But, but just the details, for, Jessica, did, did the defense... I mean, they didn't really even question Fonnie Willis about when the relationship began or I mean, they didn't get any actual timeline here, or really any pursue any kind of lines of questioning. On she that. did say when the relationship began and it was consistent with what Nathan Wade had said, which was it was in 2022. So after he had been appointed and it continued through 2023, they both said it had ended in roughly the same period of time, which would 
suggest, if you believe both of them, that when she appointed him to this role as special prosecutor, they were not involved in a romantic relationship. The only evidence that was proffered to the contrary was the testimony of that one witness, who was her former friend, who said in a very sort of nonspecific way that she believed that they had been having a romantic relationship way back before the 20, uh, 2022 date. I did not find that witness credible. Um, she was not specific. Um, she clearly seemed to have an ax to grind with Fonnie Willis. Um, so when you put the sworn testimony of these two attorneys um, against the testimony of that one witness, I thought that, that the defense, who has the burden here, did not carry their burden based on what we've seen thus far. But they, they certainly carried their burden of embarrassing the hell out of the prosecutor in this case. And that's why, you know, Donald Trump was the big winner in Atlanta today. I mean, and, and that's why this, I don't think this proceeding ever should have been held. I don't think this, this is a relevant issue. But the fact that this judge, who seemed to be a bump on the log, not let, you know, letting all this nonsense go on for hours and hours, the only person who really benefited here was Donald Trump and the other defendants. Gwen, I want to play a, a bit more of uh, the DA's uh, testimony today and then ask you about it. He called his travel agent. He calls his cruise agent. They do it. And then he tells me how much it is. And I give him the money back. I know he initially paid for it. Did you pay him back? For the cruise and for Aruba. Yeah, I gave him his money before we ever went on that trip. You gave him cash before you ever went on the trip? Mm-hmm. The money that you paid Mr. Wade, the cash, in October of 2022, you do not know where that money came from. I do know where it came from. It came from my sweat and tears. Gwen, I'm wondering what you thought of her on the stand and the job the defense did. Well, again, I have to agree with all of your other guests that many of us wish we were not having to talk about this. There is a real uh, question for a jury at some point in time about the underlying charges, and yet we have not spoken about the sufficiency of those charges in weeks as we deal with this. So, uh, but even that all being said, I think D.A. Willis did what she had to do today. What you saw in her was a fight as she's trying to defend herself and her reputation against these types of allegations, but that's the same type of fight and tenacity that she brings uh, to her pursuit of justice on behalf of her, her constituents. So so I'm not at all surprised at the tone that she took, how clear she was, uh, and how um, unwavering she was in uh, being very clear that she did not accept or she did pay back all of the money uh, that was given. So again, uh, what many hope is that we can get back to the issue of what is the evidence that establishes the underlying charges within this RICO indictment. And as long as we are not talking about that, uh, I think, again, this is just uh, a delay tactic and, and unfortunately one that's creating a very large distraction. Do you think all the, the granular details were necessary from a legal standpoint? Well, I think they certainly help. Uh, uh, because, again, it goes to the issue of credibility. And I'll agree with the other guests in terms of I do not believe, or there's many that do not believe, that the defense has met its obligation here. Uh, they have to prove that there is an actual conflict, not just a speculative one. Uh, their lead witness, or the witness they desired to call first, failed on being able to establish that case for them. They had to go to a backup witness who, again, uh, in, in my viewing of the, the 
uh, hearing did not provide sufficient detail, uh, may have an interest, or again, is it, has been labeled as a disgruntled employee, and all of that goes to credibility. So when you look at those weakening credible points with uh, the level of detail that was provided, the surety the, of the DA in providing that level of detail, uh, again, I think if you were looking at, at credibility, I don't see where uh, the defense has met their burden, nor uh, do I see where the judge could disqualify her. Laura, do you agree with that? That I mean, do you see a, a case for disqualifying her at this point? Again, she's taking the stand again tomorrow. I don't see that they... Yeah, I have not seen the evidence that would rise to the level. Again, the disqualification requirement is that it would go to the heart of the ability of the defendants to get a fair trial. We have not addressed the underlying facts. That is part of the reason why ultimately, so far, this disqualification effort is likely to fail. They have not gotten to the heart of why this would prejudice or undermine the defense's ability to have a fair trial. But if, if Anderson, they are disqualified, I do mean they, it's not just Bonnie Willis. It's her entire office. It would mean that you have a prosecuting counsel in Georgia that then has to choose to either appoint and assign or get somebody else to now be the prosecutor. That successive team doesn't have to actually follow the recommendations of the indictment. They could add defendants. They could take away defendants. They could actually dismiss the case. And they could try to go to a private practice litigator. That is a hard battle as well. You're talking about a very nominal fee compared to what the stakes are. Security issues political implications. There is a huge spotlight over this case. If they are disqualified, this could be slow rolled in a way that we would not have a trial before the actual election in November. And dare I say, not for the many months to come. And so a lot is riding on this. This judge is well aware if you were to disqualify Fannie Willis, the whole office becomes disqualified as well. I want to play some more of what uh, Willis said on the stand. Has he ever visited you at the place you laid your head? So let's be clear, because you've lied in this, this. Let me tell you which one you lied in. Right here. I think you lied right here. No, 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 no. This is the truth, Judge. And this, it, it is a lie. It is a lie. How do you think that? I think it was. I think she was a good witness. I mean, I, I think if if. For, for the purposes that she was on the stand for, she actually, I thought, demolished uh, the case against her. You know, you, some people will simply not believe that some people don't have that much cash around. But, you know, some people do. And other than that, I, I think she, she's a good witness. The problem is that, you know, if you ask people in Atlanta who are the jury pool here about Fannie Willis... They are going to know about this a hell of a lot more than they are going to know about the details of the case. And that's a win for the defense, even if, as I expect, they will allow her to Do you to think proceed. it's right? It affects the jury, potentially? It might. I mean, but in a sense, politically, she may have felt that she needed to show her outrage. I mean, I think that was genuine outrage. But I think politically, she was defending her integrity in terms of how it plays with the judge, who's ultimately the one who's making the decision on this narrow issue of disqualification. I'm not sure how it played. I mean, he seemed like he was actually getting a little bit impatient with her at times. And I believe he called a recess shortly after that clip you played, where basically things were just getting a little too hot. Mm -hmm. And he said, we're going to take a recess. And he reminded everybody that they are professionals, right? <laughs> including the witness and the lawyers, they're lawyers, and that they should treat one another essentially as professionals and not step on one another's uh, 
uh, speech. So I think that there were times where the judge was losing patience with how long her answers were going on and how non-responsive yeah. they were. So in terms of his decision here, I'm not sure ultimately if it was to her benefit. Yeah. Caroline uh, Polisi, thank you. Gwen Keyes as well. Thanks, Laura Coates. We'll see you at 11 o'clock on CNN. Jessica's going to stick around and Jeff Tubin as well. We'll talk about the former president's day in court here in New York, where a judge set the date for what will be the first criminal trial ever faced by a former commander-in-chief, plus the latest on the shootings at the Super Bowl celebration in Kansas City, my conversation with the brother of Elisa Lopez-Galvan, who was killed there yesterday. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. As we said at the top of the uh, program, history was made today here in New York. Donald Trump lost his last chance to delay a trial that will make him the first ex-president to face a jury of his peers in a criminal case. Seen as Kara Scannell was in the courtroom as it happened. A New York state judge ordering Donald Trump to stand trial for criminal charges next month. Instead of being in South Carolina and other states campaigning, I'm stuck here. This case related to a hush money repayment scheme involving porn star Stormy Daniels and former Trump fixer Michael Cohen will begin on March 25th. There is no case. It's a historic first, a former president facing a jury and on trial in the middle of a presidential campaign. How can you run for election and be sitting in a courthouse in Manhattan all day long? The judge in this case, Juan Mershon, made the decision after consulting with Judge Tanya Chutkin, who was overseeing the election subversion case in Washington, D.C. During a pre-trial hearing in New York, Trump attorney Todd Blanche seized on that unprecedented timing, protesting for a delay. We strenuously object to what is happening in this courtroom, he told the judge, with Trump's eyes locked on his attorney. The fact that President Trump is going to now spend the next two months working on this trial instead of out in the campaign trail running for president is something that should not happen in this country. Judge Mershon asked, what's your legal argument? That's my legal argument, Blanche said. That's not a legal argument, Mershon replied, telling the lawyers he'd see them on March 25th. We'll just have to figure it out. I'll be here during the day and I'll be campaigning during the night. This case stems from actions that took place in the days before the 2016 election, when Donald Trump, former National Enquirer publisher David Pecker, and Michael Cohen allegedly schemed to keep Stormy Daniels from going public about an affair. According to the indictment, Cohen paid $130,000 in hush money to Stormy Daniels, then submitted sham legal bills to the Trump Organization, which the former president reimbursed with a series of monthly checks. I did it at the direction of, in concert with, and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. 
Today, the parties debated questions to ask prospective jurors. An 18-person jury will ultimately be seated. Trump's lawyers wanted to delve into politics, telling the judge they need to know if people like Trump. Judge Mershon called it inappropriate, saying they need fair and impartial jurors. I'm honored to sit here day after day after day on something that everybody says the greatest legal scholar said, it's not even a crime. That was CNN's Kara Scannell, who's with us here, joining us as well, former Trump uh, White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci, Jeff Tubin, and Jessica remain with us. Kara, um, let's start out with you. What stood out to you? What else stood out in the courtroom? So, uh, you know, we saw Trump in the E. Jean Carroll trial where he was outspoken. He was disruptive to the courtroom. Today, he was quiet. He was leaning back in his chair for most of the time and really paying attention to the attorneys who were speaking. What I also thought was interesting, you know, we talk a lot about how the attorneys perform for an audience of one. And I have seen in the cases I've been covering that the lawyers do tend to um, enhance their dramatic speaking before the judge when Trump is in the room. And after Todd Blanche had made his pitch to try to push back the trial date and lost, and they moved on to talk about jury selection and to talk about the trial schedule, the judge said, is there anything else you want to bring up? And at that point, Blanche looked over at Trump, who nodded at him, and then Blanche began saying he objects to everything that's happening in this courtroom. Trump shouldn't be here. This shouldn't happen in America. And then when Trump was leaving the courtroom, someone in the back row started clapping. And the court officer said, you know, quiet in the courtroom. But that is the first time I've seen someone publicly react in the courtroom to him in a way that was really audible. Mm. Anthony, I mean, do you think this, you know, he's saying this hurts him on the campaign trail. He has been able to make any court appearance into a campaign appearance. It, it really does hurt him, though, because it's killing him with the donors. Uh, the RNC, it's killing him with a large donor community. Because he, uh, he is also, fundraising off this with small donors. He is, but the, the incremental fundraising, he's now turning those lemon rinds into lemonade. It's very hard, Anderson. And so he knows that a path to the presidency requires way more money than he's currently raising. And so this does not help him at all. Moreover, he'll be in that courtroom for for two months. He makes no fundraising calls. If you talk to any of the big donors and uh, any of the big donors that talk to Ronna Romney and McDaniel, they don't want to give her any money. Uh, and so this is a disaster for the guy. OK, now he's been lucky. He's got the distraction going on in Georgia. But, you know, Michael Cohen has been fairly thorough with the prosecution about exactly what happened. And let's not anybody forget, Michael Cohen served jail time for what happened. And so, Michael so this, Cohen, is a big, this is a big case, and it's a big deal for Donald Trump. As a witness, though, Michael Cohen has a lot of problems. He does have a lot of problems. And, I mean, the prosecution, if they're smart, is going to front all those problems on their direct examination of him so it doesn't look like they're hiding anything from the jury and leaving it for cross-examination. And they're going to have to corroborate everything he says that's material. They're going to point to the document showing the reimbursements. And they're going to need other witnesses, maybe David Pecker, who's going to be able to corroborate the purpose of those payments. Corroboration is going to be absolutely critical here. You know, I was in the courtroom, too, and I was struck by how shabby it is and how, uh, you know, there, there was a, there's a bulletin board right next to where Trump is. And it, there's a little piece toward piece of paper that says, you know, what to do if there's a, uh, a, a mass shooting incident. I mean, that's that's the kind of courtroom this is exposed wires everywhere. I mean, this is a rough and tumble New York courtroom and he's going to trial. And, and you know, that's not good for him. 
they're going to be witnesses that he's not going to be able to grandstand. You know, he's not going to be able to try this case in the hallway like today. You know, it's just going to be witnesses. And it's not clear to me what his defense is other than, oh, it's all a lot of nonsense. And Michael Cohen is a liar. I mean, the documents are the documents. And it's a tough case to defend. But, but there's the, the idea of the underlying crime here. I mean, he keeps saying all legal scholars look at this and say they don't even know what the crime here is. That, there's, there's the question of the case of, of what actually is the – it's it's not the, the hush money per se it, that there's an underlying it's crime. How those docu- it's how those payments were handled in the underlying paperwork. And he made the exact argument that you're implying that there's no crime here – to the judge. And in an opinion issued today, the judge said, yes, it is a crime if the prosecution can prove it. Alvin so, Bragg has actually brought up like three or four different options for what right. the crime is. Right. So it's primarily a legal argument uh, that he made to the judge and lost today about how this is not a crime. You can't essentially incorporate one of these theories into the crime of falsifying business records. And he lost on that. Now, he may prevail on that on appeal someday. That's possible. But now going forward, Alvin Bragg's going to have to persuade the jury that Trump falsified these business records in order to conceal or further another crime. There are three crimes that the judge has said Bragg can pursue before the jury. One is violation of federal election law. Another is violation of New York state election law. And the third is violation of New York tax law because of how these payments were made. Uh, Alvin Bragg was on radio recently, and he is sort of portraying this as an election interference case. That's the best framing of this case, I think, in terms of the significance of it. These were payments that were made during the 2016 election, where Trump allegedly was trying to cover up the affair with Stormy Daniels that she alleged because he thought that if the public knew about it, it would diminish his chances of but, succeeding as president. But the theory makes all kinds of sense that Bragg puts forward. It's not just during the election. The check to Stormy Daniels went on October 27th, you know, the week before the election. I mean, that's why he paid Trump's the money. Trump's argument has been, well, I didn't want my wife to find out about this and therefore that this was made. Well, in the indictment, there's an allegation that you can tell that they spoke to a number of people on his campaign. And there is an allegation there that they were concerned about how this was playing with voters. And so that is how they're going to try to tie the two together to prove the case, because Bragg is trying to make this as the first election interference case in 2016 before the 2020. It would have really hurt him. You had the Access Hollywood tape on October 7th. You had that check on October 27th. If that came out the weekend prior to the campaign, he was already in trouble with Melania. He He's only offered like two apologies, I think, and one was to Melania over the October 7th fiasco. And so Mr. Bragg has a real point here about election interference. Uh, that would have. You think that's a strong case? Oh, I think it would have kerplunked him if that came out prior to the election, and that was the threat, and that was the hush money payment. Okay, that's the election interference that the professor's referencing. We're so inured to Trump scandals. You know, paying one hundred thirty thousand dollars to a porn star actually was probably a pretty big deal in October of 2016. Mm-hmm. Now we've talked about it for so many years, it seems like, you know, background noise. It was it would have been a very big what, deal. What in happens October. if he is found guilty of this? I mean, so as a first time offender, he's he may not get jail time, but the judge, you know, we'll see what comes in of this case. I mean, part of the theory is that this was a big um, catch and kill story, that this was what he was doing, um, it, not just Stormy Daniels, but also the Karen McDougal payment um, and others. But the. At the high end of this range, he could get one and a third to four years in prison. You know, it's it's going to be up to the judge to decide what he wants to do. But it all it all boils down to the judge. All it boils down to the judge. The judge could give him probation. Can you see him actually? 
I don't I don't see him ever going to jail. I mean, listen, you know, uh, I, you know, Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon. There was a firestorm after it. We don't want to jail these political opponents or adversaries. Do you think a conviction, if he was convicted in the case, do you think it, it hurts him politically? I do think it hurts him politically. And Even remember, though people say this is like the, the least, you know, impressive you, you of the cases. I understand that. And let's say it doesn't hurt him with the hardcore 20 to 25 percent. You got to get the independence and you need the money. Anderson, you know this better than anybody. The money is the lucre of these campaigns. He can't find the money, and it's drying up. And by the way, the money's still going to Nikki Haley. I mean, there's one fundraiser after the next here in New York or in Silicon Valley. And how's how's she doing with all that money? Well, my only recommendation to her is you got to expand the market. you got to think like an entrepreneur. Don't don't challenge Trump. Go go find the non-voters like Barack Obama did in 2008 and invite them into the party because uh, you're not going to beat Donald Trump on his own home turf. Expand the party. I think that's the mis- mistake that the adversaries of Donald Trump are making on the Republican side. Um, everyone, thanks. Appreciate it. Good to, good to have you here. More on the Trump trial shortly. First, we have more breaking news. A significant blow to the House Republican Biden impeachment probe. The special counsel investigating Hunter Biden tonight, charging a former FBI informant with making up claims about the president and Hunter Biden's involvement with the Ukrainian company Burisma. Here with details, CNN's Evan Perez. So how central, Evan, was this testimony of this witness to the House Republicans' case against Biden and Hunter Biden? Well, Anderson, he's uh, very central to at least the claim that uh, Joe Biden was benefiting uh, from his son's business business dealings in Ukraine. Uh, This informant's name is Alexander Smirnov. He was arrested today. And what's important here is that he was the one who told the FBI that, uh, you know, in a memo that, that the Republicans fought to make public, uh, that, the, uh, that there was a, uh, an executive at Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company where Hunter Biden was serving as a board member, that that person had said that they were paying Joe Biden and Hunter Biden $5 million apiece in order for, for, uh, for favors for the business interests of Burisma in the United States. What the FBI says is that it's completely false. I'll read you just a part of what they say uh, in the uh, in this court filing. It says, uh, in short, the defendant trans- uh, transformed his uh, routine and unextraordinary business contacts with Burisma in 2017, and later into bribery allegations against uh, public official one, who is uh, Joe Biden. We've reported uh, the presumptive nominee of one of the two uh, major political parties for president after expressing his bias against public official one and his candidacy. Uh, this is important because, as I pointed out, uh, Anderson, uh, for Republicans, this was sort of a a, a big part of their claim that Joe Biden was corrupt and that uh, he was benefiting from his family's corruption uh, and why they've launched this, uh, this impeachment inquiry. Has there been any reaction from House Republicans? Well, now, not surprisingly, they uh, are dismissing the importance of Smirnov in their in their inquiry, and they say that there's a mountain of evidence. James Comer uh, told uh, or Annie Greer that there's uh, there's a mountain of evidence that they've collected that they've uh, amassed as part of this investigation, and so they say that this these documents that the that uh, Smirnov is alleged to have falsified are not that important to their inquiry. All right, Evan Perez, thanks. Coming up, back to the former president's many trials today while taking questions from reporters at his Manhattan Hush Money trial hearing. He did not respond to whether he would be back here in New York tomorrow for the expected verdict in a civil fraud trial, one that could cost him hundreds of millions of dollars. We have a preview of that next. 
The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. We're now in the many Trump trials. While in Manhattan for his hush money trial, the former president also addressed his civil fraud trial, where a verdict is expected tomorrow. He called it a, quote, rigged deal. That other New York case that may pose the biggest danger to him, financially speaking, he and his sons already have been found liable for fraud. Now the state attorney general is seeking, among other penalties, more than $370 million from the former president and his businesses. Joined now by investigative reporter and Syracuse University law lecturer David K. Johnson. He's the author of The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Back with his former federal prosecutor, Jeffrey Tubin. What do you expect the damages to actually be tomorrow? Probably around what the... What the um a prosecution has asked for. I mean, th- this is a case that um, the prosecution has won at every step of the process. And, um, you know, if it's not $370 million, maybe it's $300 million. And obviously, this will be appealed too. But as in the Eugene Carroll case, he is going to be in a position of having to post bonds or post the amount of money. Um, that is charged against him for in, in order to appeal, and it's not at all clear that so he he's has got, that he's much got to money. get that money to just to post it in order to have an appeal. Correct, or pay a bonding company if right. he can find one a portion of that, but then he'd have to pay interest on that, which of course he doesn't want to do. David, I mean, you were skeptical a few weeks ago that the former president has enough cash to pay the eighty-three million dollar Eugene Carroll verdict. What do you expect him to do if tomorrow he gets hit with a few hundred million dollar more penalties? Well, I think he and his lawyers will uh, scream and yell that this is all unfair and it's rigged, which is of no legal consequence. And then he's going to have to make some very hard decisions. Um, I will be very surprised if in about three weeks uh, he's able to come up with the money to appeal the E. Jean Carroll case. And if he can't, that, of course, should get people to understand that his money is all smoke and mirrors. And in this case, as Jeffrey pointed out, $370 million or perhaps a bond of around $80 million. But who is going to loan Donald the rest of that money? Uh, so th- this is going to be very, He does very have assets, though, doesn't Donald he? I mean, he does have properties. He does, though we don't know if they're unrecorded loans. Uh, that's how he bought Mar-a-Lago. Chase Bank, uh, in writing, in a letter I have, promised to never record the mortgage on that property. And I think there may be other obligations that haven't come to light. But he may be able to persuade the court to let him put up properties as security rather than cash. In in a deposition in this case, he said he had $400 million of liquid assets. That strikes me, and David knows far better than I, as extremely unlikely that he has that much much in liquid assets. And, um, you know, that you can't fake money at this point. Mm. You have to put up actual cash. And it's not it's not at all clear that he can do that. David, do you do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, I've never thought Donald had 400 million. Maybe if he was counting the money donors have been giving and part of which he's been diverting to his legal fees, which, by the way, should be treated by the IRS as taxable income to him. 
Um, we'll see if anything is ever done about that down the road. Jeff, I mean, there's also the the Trump organization and its assets. Can he use that? Well, and it's also the management of the Trump organization. I mean, one, one of the remedies that um, the attorney general, the state attorney general is asking for here is to take control, basically remove control from. And, and at the moment, a former judge, Barbara Jones, is essentially running the Trump organization. But one of the remedies here may be to make that make that kind of thing permanent, which renders which creates the possibility that Donald Trump may be living in Trump Tower, but he may not manage it anymore. Hmm. I mean, so, I mean, there's a real change in the whole business structure as well as just money out of his pocket that could be the result here. David, does this affect, I mean, his, the two sons, uh, Eric and Donnie Jr., don't they, I mean, they work for the organization. Does this impact them? I mean, are they financially liable here as well? They are. There are actually seven charges and only one persistent fraud has been settled. And I expect the judge is going to find against the Trumps for all of them. Uh, And if the judge uh, is concerned at all about uh, Trump absconding with money or not following the court orders, I think he'll reinstate his order from months ago revoking all of Trump's business licenses. We call them business certificates in New York. And if that happens, Trump cannot do business in New York. Uh, He will have to, one way or another, dispose of those properties. And the Trump Organization is a New York corporation. A corporation is a privilege granted by the state, which can be revoked if you don't play by the rules. So if he didn't have business licenses in New York, he would have to sell everything he has in New York? Well, he'd have to transfer it. I don't think it's clear exactly how the process would work. Uh, it's certainly not clear to me. But uh, essentially, yes, he'd have to eliminate his business activities. He could still own his apartment in Trump Tower, but the retail space and the office space that he owns and the handful of apartments in the building he still owns, uh, those would all come into this, as would as other properties. His golf course in uh, Westchester County, in New Jersey, his golf course there, his California golf course, all of these... Uh, are underneath a New York corporation, the Trump Organization, which is a corporation. And the way the lawsuit is structured, the sons couldn't run it either. Wow. Jeff Tubin, right. thank you so much. David K. Johnson, right. appreciate it. Coming up, as Kansas City still reels from yesterday's deadly shooting at the Super Bowl rally, we'll take you live to a candlelight vigil and bring you the latest in the investigation. And I want you to know about the woman who was killed yesterday. I'll speak to her brother. Lisa Lopez Galvan was her name is her name. She was killed while celebrating her beloved Kansas City Chiefs. That's next. There's a candlelight vigil tonight at Skywalk Memorial Park in Kansas City in honor of the victims yesterday's mass shooting there. At least 23 people shot, including many kids. One person was killed, a 43-year-old woman, Lisa Lopez Galvan, who was a popular radio DJ. Now, in a moment, the vigil to honor her memory, but first, Shimon Prokupes with the latest on the investigation. Gunfire. Police say it was a personal dispute at the end of a rally celebrating the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl win, leaving one woman dead and over 20 injured. Victims age range between 8 years old and 47 years old. At least half of our victims are under the age of 16. Two juveniles are now in custody for the shooting. This is some kind of gang crew. Uh, you know, the, the relationship between the uh, subjects involved 
we, that's still under investigation. Several guns were recovered, according to police. Do you have enough evidence at this point? So, so some of those questions, I'm not able to give a direct answer just because I want to protect the integrity of this investigation. It seems like we are so many hours from shooting at this point, you're not announcing an arrest. Uh, we, we have subjects that are detained. At least one person was tackled by bystanders. Trey Filter said he helped knock down one man and hold him until police arrived. We were pretty elated once we knew we had him. Uh, and they started yelling that there's a gun. Casey Filter said she grabbed the gun. At first, I actually thought it was it looked like a toy. But then once I picked it up, I quickly realized it definitely was not. Nearly 24 hours after the parade ended, crews are out here cleaning up. And what they're finding are many of the personal items that people left behind as they were running for their lives. You could see some of them here, blankets and chairs, but strollers, little strollers here from babies. The aftermath of thousands of parade goers rushing for cover as hundreds of officers on scene ran toward the shots. All of a sudden, uh, through the partitions, a wave of people come rushing through, screaming, gun, run, and I was watching people being trampled. One family said several of them were hit. My son got shot and my wife got shot. She got shot in her calf. I got shot directly in the ankle. Lisa Lopez Galvan died at the scene. She was a local Kansas City area radio DJ. The city now grieving after a day of celebration. Kansas City Chiefs offensive lineman Trey Smith said he and his fellow players had to take cover and helped young fans stay calm amid the shooting. I'm pretty angry um, to the senseless violence. You know, someone lost their life today. Um, you have children that are injured. You have children that are traumatized. Shimon, what more do we know about the investigation when there when there'll be charges? Well, that's the big question right now, Anderson, because police are just not releasing much information. We tried to get answers from them earlier today. They wouldn't talk about uh, the individuals that they have in custody, just simply saying that they're juveniles. So that could be what's causing some of the delays. But, you know, it's been over 24 hours. These two individuals have been in their custody and we have yet to know uh, if they're going to be charged or if there are any charges. So that's the big question right now. And also, what was this dispute about earlier as you saw, I asked whether or not this was some kind of gang activity. Um, they refused to answer that question. So there's still obviously a lot of questions that I think the police need to answer, uh, right. Anderson. Shimon, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yesterday, we, we knew one person had been killed at the celebration. We didn't know her identity, but tonight we do. And her family wants you to know her name and who she was in life, not just in death. Her name was Lisa Lopez Galvan. She was a mother, a radio DJ, and part of a very close-knit family who loved her deeply. Her brother, Beto Lopez, joins me now. Beto, thank you so much for joining us. I am so sorry for, for your loss. Um, I, I mean, this must, I can't imagine how surreal this must seem. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, there's still, our family's still pretty much in a state of shock. And uh, we're a pretty close-knit family, so that's helping us get through this period. I, I know Lisa's husband, uh, children, were with her at the rally. Lisa's son was also shot. How, how is he doing? How are the other family members doing? Yeah, we're happy to, to report that my nephew is out of the hospital, and he's in recovery. And, you know, aside from a broken heart uh, and a hurtful heart with the loss of his mother, my sister, um, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's coming along okay. 
And, and, and my, my, you had as many as 20 family members at, at the rally, right? We did. We had quite a group there. Uh, actually had more, more people and other dispersed in other parts of the area, but, uh, yeah, just a big celebration. We wanted to, to celebrate with our home team. Lisa was a big, big Chiefs fan, I understand. Yeah, without a doubt. She, she was a big uh, local sports fan in general, but uh, I think, I think there's no one louder in my family than she was as a, as a Chiefs fan. Tell us about Lisa. I mean, she just sounds like such a, a, an extraordinary person, so outgoing, clearly loved music. I mean, she was a, a DJ for KKFI radio. Uh, I know she DJed as well at, at, at events and, and functions. Lisa absolutely was an amazing uh, woman, uh, great mother, great sister, great friend. Uh, yes, yeah, she, she just loved having fun and helping others. And, uh, you know, the things that she did in this community uh, are going to be felt uh, and, and, and uh, badly. Uh, people are going to be hurting for a while with, with her loss. It, growing up, was music something she was always passionate about? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a funny story. We we uh, have three generations of, mu- of very decorated musicians in our family. Wow! And uh, my my siblings and I broke that trend, but she took up de- being a DJ. Uh, I guess she counted that as a musician, and uh, and she did a really good job with that. Great job. What else do you want people to know to to know about her and remember about her? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you have tragic situations like this one that occur, unfortunately, way too often. And a lot of times uh, individuals uh, get lost as, as just statistics or numbers. Uh, my sister was a real person. She was a very loving, caring and devoted uh, mother, like I said earlier, uh, and community leader. She did a lot for this community in the Kansas City area, uh, raising money for a lot of char- charitable uh, events and, and organizations. And uh, it's something we'll be very proud of forever. But uh, again, I, I'm so sorry for, for your loss and, and your family's loss. And, and I hope you can spend time with family and, and have time to, to, to get through this together. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Anderson, for the opportunity and for us to share uh, a little bit about the life of, of my sister that was uh, very impactful uh, in this community. And we want as many people across the country to know about her. Uh, Better, thank you. Thank you. The news continues. The Source with Kaylin Collins starts now. I'll see you tomorrow. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.